Welcome to the Fed Heads, a weekly podcast from Grant Thornton Public Sector. Join the Fed Heads, Robert Shea and Francis Rose, each week to talk about the arcana of government management and the people who are working hard every day to improve it. Welcome to another episode of Fed Heads. I'm Francis Rose. And I'm Robert Shea. The topic of getting new people into public service is something that's been very important to you for a long time. I think you and I have been talking about that almost as long as we've known each other, Robert. Yep. And I don't know when this will air, but we are talking in the middle of Public Service Recognition Week. So a shout out to all those who have taken up the mantle of public service. But there's uh, not, not many higher callings than to serve your countrymen. The National Commission on Military, National, and Public Service has looked at, uh, over a long period of time, a number of ways that the various stakeholders can encourage more people to take up the mantle of public service. The chairman of that commission is Joe Heck. And Joe, first of all, thanks for coming on the podcast. Second of all, Robert and I were trying to figure out what we should call you before this started. You are a retired general. You are a former congressman from Nevada. You are now the chairman of this commission, you're a commissioner on the commission, so we just weren't sure what we should call you. So I just tell everybody to call me Joe because it makes it easier for everyone all the way around. All right, Francis owes me ten bucks. Right, Francis owes me ten bucks. I do, <laughs> I, and I, I owe you an apology, I guess, for that, Joe, because I, I think when you were on Government Matters, I think I called you General, and I just do that out of habit and respect for people who've been in the military. But so I, I don't know. I, I, I admit I bet against the fact that you would say that. Just call me Joe. Well, I'm sorry you lost ten bucks. No, I, I, I think you're probably I think you're probably not. But that's that's beside the point. Um, tell me first what the commission was supposed to do. What was your charge from Congress to look at the way that people think about public service and the way they choose to serve? The original mandate from Congress was to evaluate the selective service system uh, and to see whether or not there were any changes necessary to modernize it in support of the 21st century force. And then the second charge, and the one I think that's even more important, uh, which was added by the late Senator John McCain and Senator Jack Reed when the bill was in the Senate, was to really do a holistic and comprehensive review of all forms of service in the country, whether it be military, national, or public service, and look for ways to encourage more individuals, especially today's youth, to aspire to a career or profession in service. Uh, and so it's we, we took it on the commission for, from this concept of recognizing the spirit of service that exists throughout the country now. As we've traveled the nation over the last two and a half years, you know, 44 cities, 22 states. I mean, we travel to talk to the American public about their views on service, and there definitely is a spirit of service. And what we wanted to do is nurture that into a culture of service so that those who serve are no longer the exception, but it becomes the norm. It would not be unusual for someone to come up to you as you were finishing high school or finishing college to say, so how are you going to serve? We're in the middle of a global pandemic, and I think of things like the um, Health Service Commission Corps. How do you see the nation responding to the call for service in a time like these? More importantly, what would you think the future should look like? How quickly do you think we should be able to marshal the, the country to step up in a time like this? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And uh, certainly we have seen examples of selfless service uh, come to the forefront 
during the response to this pandemic crisis, whether it is, as you mentioned, the uniform members of the public health service, the Commission Corps traveling all over the country, the researchers at NIH trying to work on a vaccine, the epidemiologists at the CDC, you know, and I think it also has kind of broadened the definition or view of what constitutes public service, right? You look at nurses that are working in hospitals all around this country, putting themselves at risk in order to care for COVID patients. You look at the first responder community, the paramedics, the firefighters that are continuing to respond to 911 calls, unknowingly whether or not the call they're going on is going to be somebody who's COVID positive and whether or not they're going to become infected and then potentially transmit that infection to their families when they return home. Uh, So we see service uh, during the pandemic all around us. Um, I I think it's important to note that, you know, the commission, we issued our final report and we're done, right? Because uh, when we issued our interim report last January, uh, it was during the longest government shutdown in our nation's history. Uh, when we issued our final report, it was during the pandemic. I'm not trying to imply any cause-effect relationship here, but the public should be thankful that we don't have any more reports because God knows what would happen <laughs> with the next issue uh, of a report. Um, And so we think that of the 164 discrete recommendations that we make in our report, that they will definitely make this nation able to respond more quickly and also to be more resilient post-crisis. And we truly believe that if many of these recommendations had been in place in January and February, we would have been able to better respond to the pandemic that we're seeing now. Uh, and that's whether it's the military service, as you saw, active duty and reserve component soldiers and sailors and airmen deploying all over the country to help bolster um, the civilian health care sector, whether it's the national service programs, people that belong to the senior corps program that are continuing to pro- help provide uh, meals to those that are homebound, uh, or the public service sector, which we've just talked about, and the incredible work that public servants are doing to try to keep our nation healthy and functioning. Joe, when you went out and the other commissioners went out and did this work, you talked a moment ago about the terrific appetite to serve that you found. What do you think the disconnect is between that appetite to serve, the willingness to serve, the desire to serve, and what we see in, for example, the civilian part of the federal government, and to some degree the uniformed military too. I mean, those recruiters go out there and they work really hard to fill the billets every year. What do you think the disconnect is between the desire to serve and the actual serving, the actual service level that happens in the country? Yeah, great question. So I'll do kind of the strategic view across all three forms of service and what we found there, and then zero in a little bit uh, and do a deeper dive on the public service sector, because there are some uh, nuances uh, and discrete issues that affect public service more than the other two. Uh, So the experience that we had in traveling the nation and talking to the American public and the broad amount of research that our incredible staff did on all of the issues previously looked at in in this regard we kind of broke it down into three fundamental areas, right? So you've got to have awareness, you've got to have an aspiration, and you've got to have access. And so, I mean, you can't be what you don't know, right? So if you don't know what the service opportunities are uh, in your community, in your state, in your nation, it's pretty hard to get involved in a service opportunity. You know, so let's take the military for an example. We know that right now the military has really become more of a family business. Those who join the service... Uh, 
usually joint because they've had a close family member, you know, father, mother, brother, sister, aunt, uncle, grandparent, who has served in the military. We know that the vast number of new ascensions, new recruits, come out of the southeastern United States, which is an area that has a higher density and propensity uh, of military installations. So there is a greater awareness. Uh, when you look at national service opportunities, I remember growing up seeing Peace Corps commercials on TV. I can't remember the last time was that I saw a Peace Corps commercial. Right? So, so people don't know about what the national service opportunities are. And certainly when it comes to public service, uh, which I'll talk a little bit more about in, in a minute, there's kind of a stigma associated with being that career government bureaucrat. Uh, so, so one's awareness. Then there's aspiration. So if you make people aware of these opportunities, what is going to inspire them to want to participate? For some, it's you know being a part of something bigger than themselves. For some, it's the opportunity to learn some potential job skills, whether it be hard skills or soft people skills by participating in some of these programs. And for others, there's a, a fiscal incentive, whether it's the academic award, the living stipend. Uh, but again, you've got to be able to um, pick the right uh, motivation, the right incentive for the right person at the right time. Uh, to get them to have a, an aspiration to serve. And then lastly, there's got to be access, right? So, you know, if we were wild, uh, wildly successful beyond our dreams and all 330 million Americans wanted to serve, um, we've got to make sure we have opportunities for them, and they have to be meaningful and fulfilling opportunities, not just busy work, not something that's uh, where they don't feel like they are actually accomplishing something, because we know from the research and talking to folks, that if you give somebody an opportunity to participate in a meaningful, worthwhile experience early on in life, they will be hooked. And they will come back again and again and look for additional opportunities to serve throughout their lifetime. Uh, and that's where we want to be, this generational change where people uh, begin a service opportunity as early as middle school and high school, uh, and then they're, all of a sudden they've got the service bug, uh, and then they'll go on to do perhaps a national service uh, program, uh, post-college, they may enter the military, uh, mid-career when they are situated, they may want to come back and do another service. When they retire, they join senior corps, so it's this cradle-to-grave approach. Now, for public service, as I mentioned, one of the biggest areas is, uh, especially to the federal civil service, is the perception that, unfortunately, too many Americans have of federal civil servants. Right, the you know job security can never get fired. Sitting behind a desk, collecting this great paycheck and this you know great benefit package, you know living a cushy cushy life, uh, and really being the cog in the wheel of progress because you're nothing more than a government bureaucrat. Uh, one of the places that we traveled was the federal uh, government center in Denver, color, color, uh, sorry, Denver, Colorado. Right, so the largest concentration of federal employees outside of Washington D.C. This was one of the biggest issues that they raised to us: is this misperception. Uh, of federal civil servants, uh, people not realizing that you know when you get your social security check, that's uh, a federal civil servant who's running that system. When you go see your doctor and you're on Medicare, it's a federal civil servant who's making sure that claim gets paid. You know, people don't make that connection, uh, and I think unfortunately that is one of the biggest issues that we have to overcome. And also, unfortunately, uh, it comes from the top, right? When your elected leaders uh, often disparage the federal civil service. It makes it really hard for you know, John Q. Public to say, hey, I want to go be a federal civil servant. Joe, I was going to follow. That's exactly where I was going to go next. 
you gave an inspiring charge, uh, but also were pretty candid about the challenges. How do you see the president or presidential candidates or Congress stepping up to follow through on a lot of your recommendations? Yeah, so I mean, we hope that uh, the recommendations made, especially, I mean, across the board, but especially for public service, uh, become adopted. Many require legislation. Some can be done by executive action. Others are just policy changes. Uh, but it be, And we call out in our report the need to change um, the conversation about the value uh, of civil servants, whether it be at the federal government level, local, state, or tribal. Uh, I mean, these are truly individuals that in their own way are giving of themselves selflessly to serve the constituency uh, dependent upon the, the level of government in which they work. Uh, and they need to be recognized as such, especially at the federal level. Because you think about it, only 6% of the federal workforce is under the age of 30. And about one-third of the federal civil service will be eligible to retire over the next five years. So we have this kind of constricted pipeline on the way in, and we have a potential brain drain on the way out, and that does not bode well for this republic uh, if we cannot change the perception and continue to recruit and retain the best and brightest into the civil service. One of the recommendations you made that got most of the attention was one that I need your help with as the father of three teenage daughters. You recommended that women register for the selective service. Talk to us about how you came to that recommendation, um, how it's been received, and any advice how I break it to the girls. Sure. So uh, certainly it was um, the issue that evoked the most passionate response uh, and debate, uh, whether it was in the public forum that we uh, uh, conducted or even amongst ourselves as commissioners. Um, and ultimately, as you kind of peel back uh, people's understanding of the selective service system and the draft, one of the things that we learned as traveling around and talking to everyday Americans is that very few people truly understand the selective service system, and, and they conflate the selective service system and the draft as being one and the same, which they are not. Two very separate uh, and distinct entities. The selective service system is not part of the Department of Defense. Their sole role is to collect the registration data and to have the database of individuals uh, to call by lottery, lottery in the event Congress and the President decide to enact a draft. Right? So, so all it is is the registration uh, with the data to be able to identify individuals should Congress and the president decide to enact a draft. And in order to do so, they would actually have to pass a piece of legislation. Right? Congress would have to write a bill enacting the draft, and the president would have to sign it. So once we kind of discussed that with, with folks, some started to see you know, a bit of a difference. Uh, but ultimately, what, what, came, what it came down to for us was it's about standards, 100% about standards. Um, when we would be potentially facing an, such an existential threat to our national security that Congress president would potentially consider a draft, we want to make sure that we have the best people qualified to respond. And when you look back uh, at the draft over time, when it was utilized, when the military had difficulty meeting the numbers necessary, what did they do? They lowered the standards in order to get more numbers. And, and we don't want that. 
And when you look at today's population, men and women are equally uh, qualified based on all of the current standards to join the service. In fact, women are a little bit higher qualified, about 29.3% of women and 29% of men um, qualify to enter the service. Uh, and so uh, why would you exclude you know, half of the U.S. population who are qualified from serving in the event that service was needed? And, and the other piece that we tried to dispel in the, in the report is this concept that a draft is only used to uh, fill the ranks of combat replacements. Because that's not true either. If you go back to the World War II experience, more than half of those who were drafted worked in three primary areas. They were um, logisticians, uh, clerical, um, or other administrative positions. They, they weren't infantry. They weren't paratroopers. You know? uh, and so as with any individual, male uh, or female who would potentially be drafted, they will be assessed as to where their skills and attributes would best serve the military. And it doesn't automatically mean you're going to be given a rifle and told to fix bayonets and charge the line. Uh, and so ultimately it's about standards, and secondly it's about you know equality. Uh, with equal rights come equal responsibilities. Uh, and it is a civic obligation to defend the nation in times of existential threats. Uh, and ultimately, those were the two biggest factors that the commission considered when making this final recommendation. There were a lot of other recommendations that didn't have anything to do with that. Were you and the rest of your commissioners disappointed, unhappy, whatever, that that's where so much of the focus seemed to go and people didn't pay as much attention to the rest of the really hard work that you all did? Well, we knew that would happen. I mean, we were preparing for it. Um, we had a weeks-long uh, series of events that we were going to hold uh, when we released the report on March 25th uh, in order to try to make sure we drew the appropriate attention to the totality of the report. Unfortunately, the pandemic had a vote in our activity schedule, and all of those things then became virtual events or had to be postponed or did not come off the way uh, that we had planned. Uh, the week after, we had um, uh, congressional hearings already scheduled, which, of course, were canceled uh, because of the pandemic. So, so we knew that would happen. Why? Because, it, of course, it's, it's probably the most controversial question that we were asked to address. And so we knew that there would be an inordinate amount of focus on that, and we tried to prepare ourselves and the rollout of the report uh, to address it and to make sure that everything in the report uh, received some attention. Unfortunately, the pandemic threw a monkey wrench into those plans. All right, we're starting to run out of time, Joe. We're very grateful for your time to talk to us today. Are there any recommendations that kind of got swamped by the coverage of uh, women registering with the Selective Service that you wish would have gotten more attention? Yeah, I think the biggest one is uh, the fundamental transformation of national service programs and, and the expansion of opportunities, as I mentioned before, in our awareness, aspiration, access. And what I think uh, is really a fundamental uh, change in providing uh, service fellowship programs. Right? So right now, if you want to participate in national service, you have to uh, get a slot in one of the existing programs, Teach for America, Conservation Corps, Peace Corps, Senior Corps. We um, create or suggest creating a fellowship program where kind of the money follows the individual so they don't have to participate in, in a formalized program. 
but they could find a certified nonprofit or organization in their own community. And this is a way to be able to get uh, national service programs and individuals into small town communities, rural areas, uh, and helping out at the community level as opposed to being a part of a larger national service program. And we think that the fellowship program will fundamentally change the way in which people participate in national service. Who do you need to do what to make these recommendations happen? Is it all Congress and, and the White House, you know, passing legislation, somebody signing it? Uh, some of it. So some, as I mentioned, uh, can be done just policy changes at with existing authorities at uh, federal agencies. Others are regulatory changes that would need to be uh, enacted, and those could be done through the executive branch. Some of the larger ones do require legislative action on the part of Congress and a signature by the president. And what we tried to do to make it easy for Congress is that we have a legislative annex uh, to our report where we took every recommendation and actually drafted it into bill language that all they would need to do is turn it over to the House or the Senate bill drafters. It's already there for them, already done in the appropriate format uh, to introduce legislation. And I say that if any of uh, your listeners uh, want to see the report, the executive summary, the legislative annex, our best practices, appendices, they can visit our website at inspiretoserve.gov. That's inspire, the number two, serve.gov. Congressman, General, Chairman, Commissioner, Joe Heck, thanks very much for coming on and talking about this. Your team did a pretty amazing job, and I'm grateful for you coming on and talking about it. Thank you for your service. Oh, no, thank you. And uh, I, we were truly blessed to have such an incredible staff uh, that was, were able to do the amount of work necessary in a relatively short period of time to turn out this product. So, And thank you for the opportunity to talk about these recommendations to your listeners. Thanks for listening to The Fed Heads, brought to you by Grant Thornton Public Sector. All of the resources talked about during the episode are available in the episode description. We'd love to hear from you. Connect with us on Twitter at GT Public Sector to join the conversation. And don't forget to leave us a comment or review on iTunes or the Google Play Store.